on the site where a Mughal-era mosque was torn down by Hindu nationalists in 1992. A turning point for secularism in the world's largest democracy? The ceremony, viewed by many as the unofficial kickoff of the campaign for Modi's BJP and its bid for a third term in power. Elections are slated for the spring. How much will identity politics matter uh, during the five weeks of voting that's due to kick off across the country in April? More broadly, in a nation where growth is soaring, where technology now reaches the most remote village, where nearly two-thirds of citizens still live outside of cities, how are values evolving? How are Indians getting along? Today in the France 24 debate, the consecration of the Ayodhya Mosque. And joining us from Washington, Irfan Nurdin, professor of Indian politics at uh, Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. From Valence in southern France, Rushi Anand, professor of international relations at Paris's American Graduate School. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Jean-Luc Racine, senior researcher at the Asia Center Think Tank. How are you? Thank you. Well, right. And we're pleased to welcome Nicolas Blarel, assistant professor of international relations at uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. The France 24 debate where you can react on the hashtag F24 debate. The ceremony was in Ayodhya. Supporters uh, watched and celebrated across India, uh, part of what the BJP has painted as a Hindu renaissance after past centuries, they say, of subjugation by Muslim invaders and colonial powers. Jenny Shin has more. An event watched by millions across the country and attended by over 7,000 people. The consecration of this grand temple is turned into a national religious event. Narendra Modi led the celebrations dedicated to the Hindu god Lord Ram. Our Ram has arrived. After centuries of waiting, our Ram has arrived. Centuries of unprecedented patience, countless sacrifices and penance, our Lord Ram has arrived. But the construction of the temple has been shrouded in controversy, as it sits on the ruins of the historic Babri Mosque, where it stood for centuries. In 1992, mobs destroyed the mosque, demanding that the site be returned to its Hindu past, its demolition sparking the worst religious riots since the country's independence, killing over 2,000 people. Centuries of temples and worship have been destroyed, and a monument was built in its place. So again, to have back this temple, uh, the gems, you know, of Lord Rama's place, you know, I think for India, it's something amazing. Modi and his party hope the opening of the temple will help bolster the Prime Minister to a record third term in elections this spring. Opposition parties boycotted the ceremony, saying it was a hasty political stunt to woo Hindu voters, as the temple is still under construction. And you see those firecrackers at the end of that report. Uh, Irfan Nurdin, our correspondent in Delhi, saying uh, you could hear the crackle uh, throughout the, the capital uh, in a lot of big cities. Uh, saffron was the color of the day. Uh, your, your thoughts on uh, what, what our correspondent, again, described as uh, uh, celebrations that were rivaling uh, the big Hindu festival of Diwali. Yeah, I mean, 
complex emotions. On the one hand, India will remain India. On the other hand, you can't help but think that today marked very ceremoniously the end of an Indian experiment in secularism, in multi-religious democracy, guarded by a constitution. Uh, so in that sense, it's a very sad day as well. What 1992 and the destruction of the mosque it, that stood in Ayodhya represented was the substitution of the rule of law by mob rule, by vigilantism. And 30 years later, we now have a media spectacle where the political prime minister of the country plays the role of a godman consecrating a temple. And it should be noted, and I'm sure we'll get this in the presentation, that even devout Hindus, including Hindu priests, who are undoubtedly very happy to have a temple built in that spot, have raised deep questions about the appropriateness, in fact, argued that it is inappropriate that Prime Minister Modi be seen as being the person representing Hinduism at a religious ceremony. Others have raised the question of why the consecration of a half-built temple would be allowed, given that in Hinduism, it would require that the temple be complete before it could be consecrated. And finally, of course, you put all those words together and you have this unflattering, un, uh, discomforting image of a political leader in the role of consecrating a religious temple. So we have, in that sense, the culmination of a religious project to make India a Hindu nation, uh, not just in terms of the majority of its population, but in the essence of its politics, of its lawmaking. Whether that can succeed in the long run, given India's immense diversity, uh, given the religious differences in the country, given the regional and linguistic differences, remains to be seen. But for today, all those crackers signify that at least for a plurality of the Indian population, it's a culmination of an effort to really re-establish India as a Hindu nation, as opposed to a secular democratic republic. Rishi Anand, do you agree that this is, as uh, uh, Irfan put it, a, quote, a very sad day? Yes, absolutely. I was just thinking as, as I was hearing Irfan, um, I'm extremely troubled, saddened, outraged. But you know what? Not really shocked. And the reason I say that is because uh, religion has always been a source of some of the most remarkable mobilizations that are political in nature. Uh, they've influenced ideology, identity, voter support. And this is just one more of those displays that have used religion um, and almost victimized, um, you know, I didn't even want to say Hinduism and the secular nature of, of, the, of the country uh, by weaponizing Hinduism to something that it just essentially is not. Uh, it's played on the flashpoint of Hindu-Muslim rivalry over you know, centuries and showcased something to, to India, the Indians, particularly the minorities, a very divisive uh, message about you know what India is going to look like. So I was watching Modi uh, speak today. He's talking about a new India. Today, Lord Ram has come after centuries. You know all of that is just like where does that belong in the realm of politics in a secular country? And you know, um, uh, uh, Irfan, you mentioned the constitution. I was you know always troubled by the fact that the Indian constitution in its original version did have you know, pictures of Ram, Lakshman and Sita and 
Uh, we have a couple of articles that are still uh, deeply rooted in, um, in Hinduism. Having said that, I think this is the first time we're seeing a really open, blatant uh, message to not only India, Indians, but the world as to what the future might look like with the BJP and, of course, the forefathers in RSS. But I will let others talk. Uh, ju just to be clear on that, uh, Rushi, because there have been past prime ministers, sitting prime ministers, uh, who've been to worship at uh, Hindu temples. Uh, tell us again why this is different, though. Well, I think the, the BJP has, right from the word go, really, in my opinion, capitalized on um, Hinduism, the Hindu state, and the divisive character of the way they've played politics. Um, so I, I find it different in the sense it's the first time it's that blatant, and you're absolutely right, right from, you know, uh, I want to say let's pick 1992 onwards. It's, again, you know, BJP kind of landmarking the way things have progressed. But I know that, you know, we've also seen Rahul Gandhi on the other side trying to also go do his messaging at a shrine in Assam. Uh, you know, he stopped and that becomes all political. So, you know, it's it's a political party thing. And as a IR theorist, I don't, you know, like I said, I'm not shocked. It's extremely saddening because it's my country. Um, and I happen to also be born a Hindu. Um, so it's extremely um, disturbing. Um, but this sort of open, blatant, uh, becoming the face of this fusion of religion and politics and killing the secular state at the time at a time when India is being looked upon at the world stage as a leader, as, you know, we're, we're better than that, you know? So I, I find this just absolutely um, a, a big, big shocker because it kind of concludes a very, very long, centuries-long um you know, political issue with Ayodhya, Babri Masjid. And of course, we still don't really have the, you know, any, any conclusive uh, evidence in, in, in any history, uh, be it, uh, you know, in India or elsewhere. So I, I think this is particularly troubling mm. because it's most blatant, most open, unapologetic, uh, literally claiming and stabbing the very nature of what we've seen as, uh, you know, a secular state. Yeah, well, well, you mentioned it there. While Narendra Modi was consecrating the temple in Ayodhya, the leader of the opposition, Rahul Gandhi, on a campaign walking tour across India, wanted to visit a temple in the northeast state of Assam. It's, Assam is ruled by the BJP. Authorities that prevented him from entering, citing security reasons. Later, Gandhi qualified his tour as a way to raise awareness over values. The RSS and the BJP were attacking the foundations of our country. The idea that all religions should live harmoniously in India, the idea that all communities, all languages, all traditions should be respected. Now, uh, noble words, uh, Nicolas Blarel, but as, as you heard uh, uh, Ruchi say, uh, he also tried to visit a temple as well, and it's, a it's part of the campaign. So is this all just politics? I mean, there's part of politics to it, and it actually is a clever, I think, political strategy um, uh, from, from, the, uh, from the side of uh, Narendra Modi, uh, inviting, he basically invited many members of the opposition to the consecration of the Ayodhya temple, and he pushed, put the current coalition that is emerging in opposition for the next elections in a situation 
complicated for them whether they should accept or and it became basically a, a pledge of allegiance are you anti-hindu or not hindu or that was at least framed by the uh, the current government and many of them decided not to go but tried to organize uh, separate events separate um, um, attempts to go to local hindu temples uh uh, or to organize intercommunal, interfaith uh, kind of uh, events like the, uh, the West Bengal chief minister, um, Mata Banerjee, tried to organize. So they tried to still try to present that they're not, they still respect or they still allege to some kind of the, the, the respect the, the revivalism of this, of, uh, of the, this Hinduist uh, narrative, but also uh, realizing that. Uh, this, they need to offer a counter-narrative, one that is more inclusive than the, the, the framing that was offered by the BJP for the last few days, leading to the consecration of the Ayodhya. So is this just yeah. politics, or is it a turning point for India? I mean, I, I think it's, there's a lot of politics. Clearly, we're going, we're, this is electoral campaigning. Where, uh, Irfan mentioned that this, was, this temple was probably uh, opened or consecrated earlier than it should have been. It's not ready uh, to actually be used. Um, so there's, they, they basically are using the electoral timeline and they're putting the, uh, the opposition in a complicated spot. Now the narrative that, the, uh, that uh, Modi has come up with also fits uh, the attempt of civilizational revi revivalism that the PGP has been pushing for and this entire native, narrative about uh, the, the, the reign of Ram com, uh, coming back or the, um, the, 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 the statements that were made, the state is Ram, the Ram is the law. These are also maybe signals or indications that there's also a political evolution and there might be future changes, reforms that we could expect if the Modi government is re-elected into more, at least reforming the constitution towards more what we call a Hindu state or Hindu Rashtra. Yeah, remember 1528, uh, the, that's when uh, North India's Mughal conquerors built the Babri Mazijid Mosque, which was destroyed Again, during that rally by Hindu nationalists back in 1992 for Ayodhya's Muslim minority, it's a pain compounded by subsequent religious riots in other parts of India. When you are deeply hurt, you neither speak nor cry. We have not come out of that situation. The pain and trauma of demolition. Honestly speaking, there is no one to protect us. So, Jean-Luc Racine, um, uh, to, to pick up on what uh, Irfan uh, Nouradine said at the beginning of this conversation, is it just when the partition happens nearly 75 years ago, Pakistan is clearly a Muslim state. Now is it just what the majority wants in India for it to be a Hindu state? Well, the question is uh, what the majority is really willing but for that, of course, we'll get the answer in the next general election. Where the current BJP is Seems favored. to be, yes, well-placed for having a third consecutive mandate. And just as it was just told now, uh, the interesting point would be to see uh, what will happen after a, a, a predicted success of Modi at this election. But for the time being, I think those who were not quite sure that uh, Hindu Rashtra, the Hindu nation, was really materialized, well, today it's clear. I mean, both when we look at uh, the visuals, mm. I mean, it, it remember what has happened uh, uh, when uh, Modi inaugurated the new building of a parliament instead of a president of a republic. And here, 
we see a prime minister who is really playing the role of uh, the, the, the chief priest with a benediction of a local chief priest, but with a protest of some high spiritual leader who say, well, it's not like that, that the inauguration should have happened. One. Two, when uh, uh, you listen to what has been said by leader of the BGP and the RSS, the RSS being the matrix, the ideological matrix established almost one century ago for building precisely an, an Hindu India, uh, it, it's, it's striking. It's not just when we say the advent of a new era, it's in a secular language. But when we listen to what has been said, I just quote, a new cycle of resurgence in our nation, an expression of the eternal soul of India. That's the president of the republic. Uh, for uh, Modi himself, well, this Grand Ram Temple will become a witness of the emergence of a grand India. Uh, for uh, and uh, Modi himself um, define uh, the temple as the temple of a national consciousness, a witness again to the emergence of India philosophy and the Grand India. And uh, for uh, Yogi himself, uh, a monk, but also the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, as you say, the largest state of India where Ayodhya is located, it's just the proclamation of a reign of Ram. So now, I mean, it's, it's quite clear. The Hindu Rashtra, India and Hindu is already there. So, here, so here's the question. We're speaking at a time when India is going from strength to strength on the world stage economically. On his foreign trips, Narendra Modi, or when he hosted the G20, made it clear that the country is open for business, unlike China. Why are people doubling down on this, uh, on, on this uh, idea, on this religious identity? Well, I, I think we have to look at the, the two sides of the question. On the one hand, of course, you have a certain percentage of Hindus who may recognize themselves in uh, uh, this kind of evolution. But we must never forget that uh, the BGP uh, under Modi and uh, Amit Shah is number two Every day, every day, they are working for this kind of goal. You know, uh, just before coming to Ayodhya, Modi was in the extreme south of India, Tamil Nadu, a state which is run by the opposition, where we conducted pilgrimage in a high Hindu place, which are important in, in the general um, religious geography of the country. So they live... No space, it's a permanent political and ideological uh, policy which try really to build up an India which is conformed to uh, what the Hindutva philosophy set up by the RSS one century ago uh, wanted to do. And it's so the, the, what you're clearly saying, and I'll put it to Irfan Nuruddin, is that uh, uh, I, the ideology comes first. The Hindu nationalism comes above all else. Is that, is that the case, though, among uh, the electorate? Is that what the electorate is voting for when they cast a ballot? No, it's complicated. For Mr. Modi, 
it is the ideology. I mean, Mr. Modi grew up in the RSS. This has been his life's work. Uh, you know, as Chief Minister of the State of Gujarat, he managed to combine a hardline Hindu nationalism in which he made his reputation as over when he sort of was Chief Minister of Gujarat during the deadly 2002 riots that resulted in thousands of Muslims being murdered in the streets of uh, Gujarat, even as the state machinery stood on the sidelines. Um, he turned that in, into a badge of honor, basically a, a vindication of his commitment to Hindu nationalism. But he also coupled that with turning Gujarat into what has been called by the PR machine of the BJP, the Gujarat model of economic growth and of foreign investment. And he took that to Delhi and has combined very sophisticatedly a narrative of India as being a destination for economic growth and also this idea of pride playing to a Hindu a right-wing grievance, not all Hindus, but a particular aspect of them for whom life has been difficult and this notion of Hindu pride, it becomes a source of energy. It gives them a motivation to enter daily life. So both of those are at play. But the truth of the matter is that the average voter cares about very basic things in the same way that average voters around the world do. They want jobs. They want to be able to provide their families a livelihood. They want to breathe clean air. They want clean drinking water. They want to be safe and secure. And on that, the government's record is much more mixed. So at the same time that there has been a lot of foreign investment coming to India, especially as the Western companies look to diversify away from China, and especially as you have a much more prominent role for India in the global stage as the West looks to alternatives to China in a way to hedge against Chinese growth. What the government has not been able to do is create the number of jobs required for its young population to be able to get. And so when elections come, those are then India is still not a presidential system. It is a parliamentary system. They will run behind Mr. Modi, but local voters vote for local politicians and there, the bread and butter of politics still maintains. What Modi is hoping is really to use this fest spectacle of today. The uh, Later this week will be India's Republic Day, in which all of India's military might will be on power again, to basically sell an image of the best is yet to come. India is growing. You can be proud to be Indian. And this is where we're going. And so it's an attempt to divert attention of the voters from a record that is at best mixed on the economy, but by making them say, there is no alternative and we are the ones who can take you to the promised land. Is he likely to succeed? Right now, the betting money is that, yes, he will. But the real question is whether the opposition can hang together, can come up with a seat-sharing plan that consolidates opposition votes. So one statistic before I turn this over, even in 2019, when the BJP won a resounding majority in parliament, it won 37% of the national vote. With its alliance partners, that was 45% of the national vote. So even at 2019, at the height of India's BJP rule, more than half of the electorate voted for a party other than the BJP or one of its partners. But the opposition was fragmented, and this allowed the BJP to consolidate votes and to win a lot of close seats. If the opposition can keep its nerve, can keep its discipline, share seats, it, there's a possibility that you reduce the BJP majority uh, significantly, 
maybe not all the way down to being a minority, but definitely one in which it requires a coalition. And I think that is yet to be determined whether or not any of what we've seen today or we'll see in the coming months can change that basic electoral mathematics. Uh, uh, Ruchi Anand, uh, uh, there are checks and balances still hearing uh, uh, what Irfan Nordin uh, is saying. Uh, even though the Supreme Court ruling didn't go the, the way of some in Iodia, uh, there's, uh, there are institutions. How strong or weak are those institutions today? I guess um, I'm going to chime in on some of the things that have been said uh, uh, by Irfan and then uh, Mr. Racine. Um, I think that the institutions are there. I think we're, you know, prime time in, in growth mode. And I think that Modi is such a smart politician. He's not only playing the Hindu nationalism card, but he's also at the same time playing the social welfare card. Um, he has really combined those two so well to um, to, to stay for, for already that long and then a third run coming up. Um, I'm going to go to a, a part of his speech where I saw on YouTube, he had put some stuff on Twitter and on YouTube, he said, the Lord has made me an instrument to represent all the people in India uh, during the consecration. So I feel like, how do I put this? I'm not sure it's as simple as, all right, Modi, nationalist, now we're not secular anymore and we're a Hindu state. This was a huge statement and one that makes everyone outraged by it, but I don't think that changes the way the institutional growth, uh, whether it's in terms of, you know, our power um, internationally or militarily or economically, I think things are getting better, but I'm not saying that's thanks to Modi's governance. You see what I mean? So I, I, I think that India is a very divided country. And when we say, so what, what do the institutions look like in India? I think the big question to ask is which India and for whom, because you know, here there's not only a, a religious divide, but there's also a class divide and there's a caste divide. And then there's all kinds of other linguistic divides that keep a lot of Indians feeling like they're not being included in this debate at all. You know, like uh, Irfan was saying, you know, who cares at the end of the day whether it's a temple or a mosque? Well, yes and no, because there are jobs at stake. You know, you are talking about a country where, you know, there's inflation, there's poverty, there's hunger, there's illiteracy. There's all kinds of bigger issues that are sort of being um, diverted to put all the attention on this as a very simple short-term strategy to get the election again, get the Lok Sabha, and then move on to perhaps do more. I don't know. I have seen trickles of, you know, some stuff that's been done also in terms of social welfare, building hospitals, railroads, uh, inclusive, but with Ram behind me type of uh, uh, mentality. And I don't know, um, maybe Irfan, um, you might be familiar, familiar with this, but you know, in, in all the old Hindu um, scriptures where we talk about Ram, there's Ram Raja, which is a form of good governance. And then there's Ram Raj. Ram Raja is simply governance. And Ram Raj is where one person takes on that role. And I think that that's where he himself is misinterpreting uh, you know, his own strategy, but I guess no one picks up on that. Um, I still think there are big holes in the very constitution of India that still hasn't been revised. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, one of the articles, what is it, 343, that talks about agriculture that says, well, animal slaughter, particularly that of cows and calves, is a, a crime. Um, I mean, it's, it's a criminal offense. 
Um, that is grounded in Hinduism. So unfortunately, I think historically, the constitution itself sort of promotes this kind of Hindutva, the Hindu nationalism that we're seeing here, um, and how this is going to impact institutions. Um, definitely more institutions than the average people who are just looking for their next meal and hoping to see a better life for themselves. Uh, you mentioned, you know, G, G20 and, you know, Modi coming to France and you know, now you know, Macron is going for Republic Day uh, to, to India, you know, the sale of all kinds of Rafales and all of that. That's another India. We're not even talking about that when you look at the pictures that you're showing us, uh, you know, of the actual ceremony and the people that are impacted. Ayodhya actually happens to be such a small and a very, very poor um city or place really with not that many inhabitants and if you go outside of this temple um uh, premises you know there's there's garbage everywhere there's traffic jams everywhere pollution at its peak so there are there are issues which are obviously being diverted by a very cunning and smart uh, politician who knows how to strategize to at least get the next election but i'm not sure the congress is not playing the same game so we're kind of in a soup i'll stop there yeah it's 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 interesting because uh uh you there, there's uh, this discussion about social social welfare projects how much the government is is investing government uh which did not pay by the way for uh, the uh the uh, temple uh, itself it did for some of the infrastructure around it and it's launched Similar big public works projects for pilgrims elsewhere. Last November's tunnel collapse uh, in uh, Uttarakhand prov uh, prov uh, state, uh, which concluded in the rescue of 41 construction workers. That was for a project intended to connect some important Hindu pilgrimage sites uh, in that state. And it's kind of, so yeah, what is, what is state money going for? But also, I'll put it to you, uh, Nicolas Blahel, uh, it's, uh, again, as we look towards these elections, um, uh, there's the national image and then there's patronage politics when yeah. it comes to India. Well, I mean, that's definitely part of it. I mean, around the narrative of the, the building of the, the rebuilding with the, uh, of the temple, which you, uh, you have said is mostly private money. And actually, interestingly, uh, a lot of diaspora donations. Uh, so that's another element that we have to talk about diaspora. It is also a signal to the diaspora, which is strongly also looking towards this pride uh, in India, and part of it is all culturally uh, civil, uh, or religious-related. Uh, so I think there's that dimension. So it's also uh, uh, trying to link or trying to, uh, uh, to lobby that part of uh, constituency. Even though it's not voting, it is investing back in India. Um, um, so that's, that's part of it. There's patriarchal politics, and uh, the Adyodhya uh, city has been completely revamped uh, it was mentioned how poor it is or in lack of development, but the entire, they're trying to build an entire uh, uh, tourist attraction of it. There's also all the mention of the major investments in the hotel, in the hotel infrastructure, uh, in the kind of amusement parks that would be, could be constructed alongside uh, the, uh, the, the temple. So there's all these uh, plans that are along these pilgrimage uh, areas of development uh, kind of uh, projects which would be linked to a specific type of tourism and other types of uh, development projects uh, that, that are linked to, to uh, the pilgrimage. But there's also, yeah, so that's, 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 that's mainly, I think, what we've been pushing alongside the, the construction of the temple and what could be linked to the, or diverting some of the attention that uh, that was mentioned because of the uh, 
the lack of results maybe in other economic indicators, that they can push development with these other kind of more small-scale pilgrimage projects. There's also discussions as the president of Yoyodia in other regions, in other parts where there's contested also sites between uh, mosques and uh, in, uh, Hindu temples that they could also revive uh, some new projects, maybe get uh, control of some lands and then start these new development projects built, in, built on these pilgrimage areas. Uh, there's some in, uh, in Benarest, for instance, a very famous mosque, which alongside a Hindu temple, where it could be the next, uh, the next project for these BJP after the elections. Yeah, there's been uh, several instances of that. After Ayodhya, there are moves to get rid of other mosques. Yeah. Uh, also in Uttar Pradesh is Varanasi, also known as the spiritual capital of India. Hindu pilgrims go there to bathe in the Ganges. France 24 spoke to one petitioner in a lawsuit to tear down Varanasi's Grand Mosque. There is enough evidence that proves that centuries ago, there was a temple here. We went with authorities for the video survey. I'm not allowed to share details, but I can tell you that we found enough remains that prove this used to be a temple. So, Nicolas Barad, we were mentioning earlier how India's star power abroad yeah. is growing. If they start tearing down mosques, there's only been one major instance we're talking yeah. about. Uh, I mean, is that going to happen, first of all? And how would that, what kind of a look would that be? I mean, it could, it could lead to, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of coverage of this happening. So it's a, it's a sign of pride and of regaining a little bit of the <coughs> civilizational pride, which also they see as also something that is first uniting uh, Hindus at home. I mean, this is this is also something that the uh, the BJP likes is uniting these divided uh, the divided Hindu community where they felt felt was divided for so many years and linked to a political project they think it could be unifying in the nation and obviously hopefully also the diaspora. So this is mainly with for domestic consumption, especially 80 percent of the population that is Hindu uh, consumption, and not so much I think about the, the foreign consequences. Actually, it could actually. <laughs> Uh, there might be some disappointment with the French delegation visiting uh, India in a couple of days because the, a lot of the attraction of the, atten the attention of the media and of the population has been towards this Monday event and maybe not as much towards Republic Day in a couple of days. So I think the international intention uh, will be mostly passive, maybe for monitoring how much this impact the, the Muslim community. Because one thing that we didn't mention, there's uh, after the, uh, the Supreme Court decisions, uh, notably of 2019, there was a, s a small land that was attributed to the Muslim community to rebuild uh, the, the, the mosque. That has got no funding and it's still not arrived. And it's not in the specific site of Ayodhya where the Babri Majid was destroyed in 1992. So there could be concerns about the welfare of Muslims in India and could be repercussions, but we haven't seen it in the international community, especially from uh, countries like uh, in the Middle East or other countries that could uh, see this as a potential uh, majoritarian kind of impulse, which could have effect on the welfare of Muslims. We haven't seen repercussions or reactions yet from the international community and especially uh, partners of India in the Middle East, for instance. Uh, Jean-Luc Racine, uh, he's going to see a very different India, Emmanuel Macron, when he, when he visits. Uh, what are the chances we'll hear the word Ayodhya from his lips when he's with Narendra Modi? Mm, I shall not bet too much on that. <laughs> uh, but you know, there is something special in the welcome that uh, he will receive because uh, he will arrive first in Jaipur, which was a royal capital in Rajasthan, 
and uh, for the mise en scène, uh, it would staging. be yeah. Uh, along with Modi, there would be a kind of procession of uh, Indian Prime Minister and French President across uh, a place of history. So uh, it might uh, attract again some attention from the media uh, beyond the, the key question, which is uh, how many Rafale. Uh, ever for the Air Force or for the Indian Navy, because what's discussed is also uh, a, a few uh, uh, fighters for the uh, Indian Navy. Uh, it's interesting to have a French president accepting the invitation after Joe Biden rejected the invitation to be the chief guest uh, at the Republic Day in a few days from now. Uh, Why is that? Just to, like you say, to sell planes? Well, I think, you know, uh, in the U.S., even if it's calibrated, uh, from the official law, uh, there are a few uh, critiques made about the way uh, Modi is governing India as far as precisely the relationship between Hindu majority and Muslim minority or Christian minority, for that matter, is concerned. Uh, but uh, for the rest, the key question, of course, um, which has been referred to before, uh, is the chance uh, of the, the bleak chance of the opposition to success, to succeed in uh, uh, having a kind of united front against uh, uh, the BGP in the next election. And for the time being, it seems that uh, it's quite a challenge because uh, we have uh, strong regional parties uh, who hardly negotiate for preserving as much uh, seats as possible from the Indian parliament. So uh, this is also why uh, Modi could be so proud about uh, uh, the present, which uh, he has defined as being kind of revenge of uh, centuries of slavery, that's a quote, and the future, uh, with, as it was mentioned, uh, the definition given of the current times by the regime is the Amrit days, which is in, in, in uh, Sanskrit and in the Vedic concept, uh, is the time of prosperity. So the goal is to have India as a fully developed nation for the centenary of Indian independence in uh, forty-nine. Uh, and here in Europe, Irfan Nouradine, uh, many leaders uh, openly saying they were spooked by our dependence on China. Uh, during the COVID pandemic, it became uh, very clear. Uh, we saw at the recent G20 summit, Emmanuel Macron and Narendra Modi together uh, talking up a, a, a rival to the Belt and Road Initiative that would somehow go through uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Gulf and the, and, and the Middle East. That's on hold for now because of events unfolding there, but it, it, it's still in the pipeline. Uh, your thoughts on Emmanuel Macron uh, traveling uh, to, uh, to, to India for, uh, for this 75th anniversary? Well, in the spirit of debate, let me be provocative. If I was a French citizen, I'd be deeply embarrassed by the president of my country going to India uh, at this time in four days to celebrate India four days after this shameful event that has occurred today. Uh, but then again, nothing surprises us any longer, right? I mean, the, the rhetoric of the West, of France, of the United States, 
in positioning itself against China has been that this is a battle, as President Biden likes to say, of democracy versus autocracy. Well, history is going to judge Macron and Biden, I think, quite harshly if India turns out to be a Hindu nationalist non-democracy. So the world that we are walking into is one in which the West thinks that by having India on side, it can play great power politics against China. Uh, But the truth of the matter is that the global economy is deeply tied into China. India has not proven the alternative that everyone hoped it would be. Maybe it will. And for the sake of the Indian citizenry who require jobs and require development, one hopes that governments can attract investment and create jobs. But in the short run, much of that investment is going to other non-democratic countries like Vietnam, for instance, which has been the major beneficiary of the diversification uh, away from China. So for the West, I think there's a moment of truth, which is in the Cold War, we played the game of freedom versus communism. And in the pursuit of that, defended a lot of pretty awful dictators that oppressed their own citizens. And now, because we don't remember history all that well, uh, we are going to be repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So last year, we had Modi, who was fettered with a state of the... uh, you know, uh, address uh, a state visit by Biden, was the chief guest at Bastille Day by Macron. Macron has returned the favor now by coming. And what that does for Modi is absolutely inoculate him against criticism that he is leading democratic backsliding, that this is religious majoritarianism, because he and his tremendous army of IT, Twitterati, will turn around to any critic and say, How can you criticize us when the president of France, a democratic country, has honored us by inviting the prime minister to be chief guest and is now coming to be the chief guest at our Republic Day? How can you criticize us when the president of the United States lays out the red carpet for us over there? And it means that local civil society, local voices, local dissidents get shut down over and over as the government uses every part of its institutional machinery to stifle dissent, to stifle the press, etc. So at the end of the day, look, none of us are naive. Uh, Great power politics follows its own logic. But the question we must ask as citizens in democratic societies is whether our governments are acting in the interest of the values and interests of the country. And the question I would pose to you and to your viewers is that in, in 15 years, the worst occurs, and India has turned into a one-party, hegemonic, religious nationalist uh, society, what kind of partner will we have? Will it be be a partner that we are happy with? Uh, Modi and and Putin have a very close relationship, which was reaffirmed in the last couple of weeks by Mr. Modi, talking about how strong the relationship with Russia is, and that Russia and Putin will remain great friends to India. Is that the partnership that we are looking for if you are a citizen of France or of the United States. it's None of this is easy, none of this is simple, simple uh, but it does mean that the optics of the French president walking through India, being feted and celebrated by Modi four days after today, uh, on Republic Day, uh, are going to play really well for Mr. Modi and I think be pretty embarrassing uh, for Mr. Macron. Of course, the, the counter-argument, and we've heard it from Indian sources, Rishi Anand, very quickly because we're almost out of time, is that... Uh, uh, India is also decoupling from its uh, military purchases, which used to largely come from Russia. Uh, in fact, that's 
We've been talking a lot about French fighter jets in this uh, in this show. Uh, just a quick final word from you, Ruchi, because we're out of time. Just uh, on on this visit, what optics do you see it under? Well, I, it's it's not easy to simplify this because I think there's a lot of complex. Um, dynamics at stake. I think that the high power politics there uh, comes from India always sort of sitting on the fence, leader of the non-aligned movement. They're doing sort of the same here, you know, perhaps Macron thinks, oh look, we're best friends and so we have this coalition against an upcoming or growing China or Russia, but at the same time India is also in the BRICS. Um, I also want to point out here, you know, something that didn't come up, is that this entire discussion for me does take a whole different um, angle when you put in place the global context of Islamophobia, um, that Modi, you know, sort of goes with Hindu nationalism and it's the minority, you know, Muslims and the, the Sikhs and the Jews and others at stake in India is less of an issue than if it was the other way around. So I think that sort of is fostered by, you know, skeletons, skeletons in the closet that even France has. So it's kind of like the mutual back scratching. Uh, I think there's a lot under the la laïcité of France as there's a lot under the secularism of India. Uh, and then of course there are Rafael's and military cooperation um, at stake that's been around for a long time with the Russia-Ukraine backdrop. Um, there's also a very largely growing interrelationship between mm -hmm. Um, their economic ties with students. I, I know I'm, I work in that, that domain, so I know right now Macron and Modi have signed um, a deal for Indian students to flood France and French students to go to India with all kinds of special arrangements. It's, it's really power politics here, uh, and you know, which is I know the theme of your um, the, the entire debate. And it's unfortunate because I think that you know India is better than that, and I think uh, people. Um, if given the power, would not be playing this game. This is really the surface of it. And uh, hopefully uh, some good sense will prevail and we'll be able to see through uh, uh, the, the mess and you know somehow not let uh, Indian secularism die this death. All right. Well, the, the, the proof will be, I guess, uh, in the pudding. We'll see how the, uh, the future is unwritten. I want to thank you very much, Rushi Anand, for joining us uh, from Valence in southern France. Irfan uh, Nouradin. Uh, in Washington, Jean-Luc Crassi, Nicolas Blarel, thank you for being with us here in the France 24 debate.